whether it's at board level, the CEOs, senior management, they're the decision makers. If they don't have the empathy to these, these communities of the challenges and barriers they're facing, they don't have the expertise how to uh, review their policies, their processes and, um, and their practices, and they don't have the networks into these communities, then nothing's going to change. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Okay, I am now joined on this week's episode of the Our Game 2 podcast by Arun Kang of Sporting Equals. Arun, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, and glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem at all. So this is a bit of a special episode. We're recording it with one eye on Asians in football, as we always do, but also we're recording this during the middle of South Asian Heritage Month, and we will be publishing it in during South Asian Heritage Month as well. So it might be slightly more general sport focused than we usually are, but we will refer to football from time to time. So I might as well just kick off and ask you, Arun, tell me about football. Do you support a football team? Yeah, I support Liverpool. Okay, we'll move on from that very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, whereabouts, have, whereabouts are you based? Whereabouts have you grown up? Um, I actually um, grew up in um, a town called Crawley. Actually, my neighbour was Gareth Southgate and we grew up together. Uh, for about eight or nine years um, and then my dad did the thing that everybody was doing was um, um, went out and um, bought a shop and we moved house after that and uh, uh, and then never looked back really so I grew up in Crawley uh, most of my life and then moved into a place called Horsham in Sussex as well and then because of university and um, my career um, I moved to the northeast and then uh, settled down in Warwickshire Okay, so for those that don't know, Crawley is pretty much south of London, just slightly south of London, and Horsham's not too far away as well. Okay, um, and so in terms of football, did you play football growing up? Was it just supporting it? Did you get to go to many games as well? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a story like many people. Why do you have so many Manchester United and Liverpool fans? Well, when we grew, we were growing up, the first, you know, the second generation of South Asians. Um, there was only one channel, you've got to remember that, it was match of the day, 10 o'clock or something like that, and they'd only have one match of the day, and it would be Liverpool or Manchester United, you know, sometimes Arsenal, but really the big game, the, the big, team, big teams at the time were uh, Liverpool and Manchester United, and hence there are so many South Asian uh, supporters. Uh, yeah, I did play football, I, I actually you know, just played um, on, on that street in um, Crawley with uh, Gareth, you know, he had all the footballs, he had all the sports, he had the tennis rackets and, and you, know, you name it, he had it and he'd bring it out and I was the only other boy who was into sport there on the street so we'd play using the little drain, do you know you get little drains, there were two drains this, on the left hand side, the two drains on the right and we just play one on one um, virtually every day um, uh, and, and, and every um you know, evening that we could. So, um, yeah, it was good. So we played football all the time. 
Okay, not the direction this episode was going to go, but tell me about Gareth Southgate. I mean, could you see his ability growing up? Was he one of those people that are naturally gifted at all sports? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was very passionate about sport um, overall, um, and he was quite. He was very focused um, on football. But you know, he was very. He was an intelligent young man uh, at the time. We were just kids, to be honest. And um, I remember when we were at um, college. I, I bumped into him at college, and um, I said, "Oh, I thought you were going to be a footballer. You're at college." And he goes, "No, well, I just want to make sure um, there's a." Um, a second career waiting for me just in case football doesn't happen um, and that was just a, a good example of somebody who was um, forward thinking very strategic um, in his um, in his thinking um, and, and luckily for Gareth the football side worked really well for him so um, but he was a fantastic you know we were the only ethnic minority family on um, in that close um, and you know we do the the, the 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 things South Asians would do, you know, we would have we had weddings there, we had parties there, we had people coming in their traditional clothing there, you know, you had people in turbans, people in suits, all of that. Um, you know, we have family and friends from Pakistani community, Indian community, Sri Lankan community, all coming around. It was, but we were the only family who were different, and you know, and give um, uh, respect to Gareth. At no time, him or his family um, ever disrespected. Ask, you know what it's like with the cars being parked in the small clothes. No, no, never did I get a, a knock at the door. We get a knock at the door to say, look, move your cars or anything. They understood we were quite an extended family and things like that. And I think, you know, that was um, him having quite a broad thinking, even at the ages. You know, I think, I think, you know, we we're talking about when he was from eight, eight onwards up to about 15, 16. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find interesting about that is one of the many common myths and stereotypes around Asians in sport and football, particularly the lack of, is the fact that apparently we focus more on education, etc., which I think is disrespectful to everyone else, to black and white people and all other ethnic mixes too, because everyone focuses on education. So it's quite interesting that arguably the most prominent manager in England right now is Gareth Southgate and that, that he did focus on his education too and he made a career out of football a very successful career he he's obviously won trophies he's represented England and he's become a successful manager in his own right but also he was still studying right through to college level which the the general stereotype again when you talk about footballers is they kind of only focus on football don't look at anything else and and kind of perhaps even drop out by the time they're 15 or so. So, okay, so that's, I mean, listen, that's fascinating. It's great to know as well. I, I may invite you back on one day and we'll, we'll pick your brains about Gareth a little bit more, but let's talk about you a little bit. So uh, how did you go from sort of Horsham in Surrey? How did, what did your career, where did it take you that you ended up where you are at the moment? You said you went to university. Did you, what did you study there? It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, my father was a very big sportsman, you know, uh, back in the day. Um, he was captain of hockey at state level, um, track and field athlete, 200 metres, 400 metres. Um, and uh, one thing he always said to me was, don't pursue a career in sport very early on. Do not pursue a career in sport. Um, it's not going to work, especially in this country. Um, you know, 
there's nobody who looks like you in the sports sector. And obviously this is going back a while. In fact, it's not that much better now, to be honest. But, you know, this is going back in those days. And uh, and so I never even thought about it. You know, I was playing football. I saw Gareth um, join the Spartans, local football club. Um, I remember saying it to my dad. He said, just don't even think about it. And so I, very quickly, I switched off my thinking about anything to do with sport apart from it being a recreational thing and you know at that time my dad always used to say health is wealth and he always said do sport for your health for your mental well-being and for your physical well-being and that and that's what really stuck with me so I always carried on with a bit of sport but later I realized there were so many other benefits of sport you know your interpersonal skills discipline confidence building teamwork but but you know other things like the networks you can build up and and and, and, and the power of sport that Nelson Mandela talked about, or that you can bring communities together through the power of sport. So this I learned much later on, but at that stage, at an early age, sport was about health and, um, 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 you know, being my wealth. And, and that's what I was doing sport for. My dad had, um, and um, my parents had always said, you've got to get to university. If you want any chances here, you've got to get past university. You've got to get a degree. And my dad was a graduate, um, you know, um, but I had to work in blue collar jobs, working in factories for 15, 20 years. Um, and that was because they just wouldn't give him a job. He had to cut his hair um, to even get that job. And we're, and we're talking working in a factory. I mean, you know, that's how bad it used to be in those days. And having to take the lip and the, um, and the, the racism and the banter, people call it banter, but it was pure racial harassment, verbal abuse and all that going on. And he, and he had to do all that. And ultimately, my thinking was, look, if my father could sacrifice, you know, 20 years of his life working in factories, I'm sure I could sacrifice a few years at a university. So, yeah, I did think about going to un a university. Um, and um, But uh, I actually started my career um, at the BBC. So I did a few years, four or five years, um, in uh, BBC uh, 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 radio, regional radio and uh, regional television. While I was there, Stephen Lawrence's death took place. Um, and that really had a big impact on me. You know, I, I'd experienced racism, similar racism on the streets, like many um, black communities have, uh, had also been facing in those days. And for um, that, that to happen, and with, um, you know, the lack of institutional support the family had etc really I was really intrigued by it especially about institutional racism and so when I did go to university I went a little bit later and I um, went off to do a degree around race equality uh, um, and it wasn't many universities that did it but I did that uh, and then later followed it up with a postgrad a master's degree in equality diversity and inclusion um, which really gave me the theoretical side of how can you actually implement interventions that can actually make a difference. I, um, yeah, I, to be honest, there were no jobs at that time for this sort of stuff. Um, my parents were happy I went to university, but really couldn't understand why I followed this pathway, but it was a real passion I had for inclusion. I wanted um, um, the country to be more fairer and just for all communities. It wasn't just, you know, uh, a few opportunities here or there we should be getting, we should be having opportunity on anything we want. And people talked about equal opportunities, but actually they weren't there at that time. So I went to university and I, and I learned all of this. And then um, in 2000, I think 2007 or eight, um, um, it, uh, London had won the bid for the Olympics for 2012. 
and immediately it hit me um, and it was the two passions I had. I love to play sport. I knew the benefits of sport. At the same time, I, um, I had a really good understanding of equality and diversity and I, re and I knew there were going to be uh, jobs coming up in that space. Um, and, um, and that's, uh, and, yeah, it took a few years, but then I did follow that passion and took a job with um, Sporting Equals as their CEO. So, okay, I wasn't aware. So you didn't create Sporting Equals, that was already set up, is that right? Uh, Sporting Equals had just been set up um, as a project uh, by the Commission for Race Equality. And uh, it was finding its feet, it was at that time, um, um, an, in an advisory capacity, working with uh, DCMS, Sport England, as well as the Commission for Race Equality. When I came in, it had just turned into a charity. So I um, came along and built the vision, um, create the business plans, and then obviously took it to where it is today. Okay. And over, what would you say are the main aims and objectives of Sports and Equals? I think, you know, some of that had changed over the years, but for us, it's very much about uh, healthier, fairer and stronger uh, communities that we're building. You know, we want, yeah, that, that thing my dad taught me from day one, where health is wealth, making sure people are doing sport or physical activity for, um, you know, for, for a healthier living, really, but also about um, a fairer community. That's what I learned at university about how can you build a fairer uh, sector and, and that's what uh, we need uh, you know those opportunities those access to um, opportunities in the sports sector whether it's somebody who wants to go on a talent pathway in football or whether it's about um, taking a job in administration in the sports sector it's about making sure the sector is fairer and then stronger is about what I said about Nelson Mandela it's about using the power of sport to bring communities together it has it has um, the part, you know, that sort of influence that no other, um, I believe, no, nothing else can match it. You, know, you don't do, don't need to know a language to play a sport, and I think that helps to bring people closer together. When you talk about fairer, fairer society, fairer communities, etc., um, what sort? When you say when you talk about communities that don't have access to opportunities. What, what sort of communities are you envisaging when you say that? Uh, I'm talking um, particularly around ethnically diverse communities, um, visible communities, you know, non-white communities, which would include Black and South Asian communities in particular as well. Um, established communities who've been in many years and there's no reason why they shouldn't be in these positions. Uh, you know, if, I think there's only one CEO um, uh, publicly funded um, by uh, the sports sector, um, you know, there's 7.9% of boards uh, made up of these ethnically diverse communities. It's just not the numbers it should be, uh, and it ha and and that's a problem. You know, 10 professional footballers out of 3,000, um, you know, you're looking less than 1%. And these are established communities who've been here, and uh, I think that's something that we've really got to really dig into in a, in a big way and when when I came into Sporting Equal we were particularly focusing on participation it was about the health of the communities getting more people to do sport and that has increased uh, but over the years later in, um, we've realized um, to really have a difference those decision making makers whether it's at board level 
the CEOs, senior management, middle management. They're the decision makers. They're the ones who are, who are creating the interventions. If they don't have the empathy to these, under, to these communities of, of the challenges and barriers they're facing, they don't have the expertise within their organizations on how to uh, review their policies, their processes and, um, and their practices. And they don't have the networks into these communities of, 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 of uh, faith centers, of community groups, etc. cetera, uh, uh, then nothing's gonna change. And that's the problem. They will create these fantastic strategies and on paper, they look brilliant but they never work because they've just not got it right. They've not, um, um, they've not embraced the communities. They haven't really brought the communities on board, consulted them in a proper way, and then actually listened to them when they create the interventions. And a lot of that is because of the lack of empathy that they have uh, for these communities. And that's why we need to diversify the decision makers in the sector. Okay, yeah, that's where the inclusion piece come, pieces come into Absolutely. it, right? Um, okay. So how does Sporting Equals do this? Does it challenge the organisations that look after the various sports in the UK? Does it look at the communities and encourage them to get involved? Is it a multifaceted approach? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, you know it's a lot of one of the things I wanted to do when I came to Sporting Equals was to listen to the communities themselves. At that time, it was very much just doing advisory support, you know, three or four offices of advisory support. I want to get into the grassroots of the communities. You know, we're establishing many of the cities in, in, in the UK now. Um, and uh, for us, it was building up a network. We have a network of over 5,000 organizations from base centers, sports clubs, football clubs, and uh, community groups of over 250 uh, member organizations. And they're the people we speak to. What are the barriers you're facing now? What are the racial discrimination you might be facing in the workplace in the sector, et cetera? And we get that information from our communities. We then work with the sports sector, particularly national governing bodies of sports and professional sports clubs. And we then build interventions, build models that we pilot at uh, those approaches and then put it into the sector. And, and hopefully some of the um, sector then takes that on board. But in particular, Sport England, who've been... Um, um, a, a partner from day one. Okay, so I mean, it's interesting that you you talk about, I guess, trialing things and see what does and doesn't work. So, in terms of that, first of all, actually, the first question I'm going to ask is: so you've been studying this. When did you go to university? I I graduated with my masters in two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine, right? Okay, um, so. I know I would imagine that in the last year or so, especially since um, the George Floyd murder, etc., things have accelerated. But in that since 2009, so in the last what's that 12 years, just over a decade, has has much changed in terms of the theories and what pe people are trying to achieve. I think the the understanding of the sector for uh, race equalities got better. I think the problem we have is a lot of the people who are leading diversity and inclusion in the sports sector don't have the empathy, the expertise, or the networks into these communities. And so I've always gone for low-hanging low fruit, as they, as they called it. And so it was easier to work on gender equality 
or, 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 or disability rather than race because you know, race with the sensitivities of uh, uh, within it, the, the diversity of the cultures, the religions, you know, all of that is um, uh, multifaceted. And, and so therefore, many people didn't want to touch it. Uh, and I think that is starting to change. Um, and I think, you know, initially, it wasn't something uh, the sports sector wanted to do a lot, uh, a lot with, um, even though there was a lot of um, rhetoric on the subject area, there was some um, 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 uh, successes, uh, like the leaderboard academy that we set up. Um, and, you know, I know Sport England have um, invested uh, greatly in, in, in a model that replicates what we um, created uh, four or five years ago. And so, yeah, so there have been some um, uh, positives, but really, it's really taken off um, last year from Black Lives Matter at, at a different pace and an unusually uh, fast pace, which I think, you know, as I've said to my team, my board and my organisation and our members, we've got to take the opportunity while it's here now. Okay, um, so just out of curiosity, um, you've mentioned um, gender equality, you mentioned disability equality, etc. Uh, is, is that, the, do you guys cover all of that or do you focus on the, the race side of things? For us, we, we, we use the intersectional lens, as they call it. So what we're saying is you can't, you know, you can't just look at race um, singularly. You've got to look at all the different um, aspects to that. For example, we call it multiple discrimination. So you could be a black disabled woman. So we need to look at disability. We need to look at gender equality. We need to look at LGBT. Uh, Q plus, uh, and we need to look at faith. So the, all of these aspects, we do need to look at our, but we start with race first, and then we start to bring the other um, uh, intersexual layers into that um, uh, mold. Uh, we don't start the other way. We won't start with gender first, because that, that could easily distract you away from, the, um, from race. We want to start with race, and then we work our way through the other intersexual barriers and discrimination um, communities face. Okay, and when you talk about obstacles and barriers, can you just give me a brief overview of what are the main obstacles and barriers that you guys come across or the communities face? I mean, it's at different levels. We all know about grassroots um, sport, um, 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 playing football in grassroots, the, the, the racism still there from players, you know, from people on the touchline, it's still there. I hear it all the time. It was happening when I was playing football. It is, it is a bit of a downer. You know, you've gone there to just have a, yeah, it's recreational sport. You've gone there to have a bit of fun, you know, for your health, to meet your friends, a bit of well-being. And then by the, by the time you come off it, if you've had that type of racial abuse, it does have an effect on your well-being. And so you are wondering, what, what was the point of playing? if you're going to come home feeling actually worse than you did when you got there in the first place. So that you've got that sort of level in the se sector itself, um, going for um, opportunities in the sports sector. Um, there is a lot of nepotism. However we look at it, there's a lot of nepotism. It's who you know, not what you know. And, and that's something we need to be breaking down. And a lot of the work Sport and Equals are doing under their Sport and Equals charter is saying to the sports sector, sign our charter, Part of that is you'll review your policies and processes 
and make sure your staff adhere to those policy and process. So if we can review them and we make sure that you've got step-by-step -step guide to make sure you do your recruitment right, then and, and you can get your organization employees to follow those steps, then you've got a better opportunity of having a more of a fair and just process in place. And a great example of that would be, there was a um, governing body of sport <clears throat> who spoke to me just a couple of years ago, who said, you know, we'd really promoted, we, we'd really worked on this advert. We talked about equality diversity was so important for us. And we went out there and we had no applications from anyone who was ethnically diverse at all. And so we did a review, they said, and they said that what we realized is that we'd gone, we'd used the same process that we always used, went to the same recruitment agency we always used and got the same results that we always got. And that's the sort of thing that Sporting Eagles are trying to break down. You've got to do it in a different way. You've got to shake things up internally. I know sometimes the pressure is on, you just want to get the advert out there but you've got to do it if you really believe in having a more fair and just um, communities and society, then you've got to do it the right way. And most people, um, and, and I think Black Lives Matter <clears throat> protests last year showed the diversity of the people out who were protesting was many white uh, communities as it was black communities and South Asian communities. And, and that just showed that people want a, a fairer society anyway. To do that, we've just got to think outside the box and we've got to put a little bit more effort into it. Okay. And in terms of, I mean, tell me some of the success stories that you guys have had or with the organisations that you've worked with. I mean, I think our Leaderboard Academy is a fantastic example. We were the first um, organisation to do something across sport um, for uh, uh, leadership in sport. So it was that board diversity. When we started it off, and board, board uh, diversity was at 3% from ethnically diverse communities of national governing bodies of sport and, and other publicly funded organizations. We set this up um, and uh, we were looking for individuals who were professional. Can I just check, was that the report that came out about a year ago, which looked at the, the boards of, I think, was it about 100 different sports in the UK? And had very small numbers that were of the black African uh, Asian minorities etc that was was that from you guys from sporting equals is that what you mean I think we have been doing audits like this for a while checking what numbers um, are there at the board level you know this is one of the the board is where the the decisions and strategy are being signed off if we can have diversity there, they can then make the decisions on, oh yeah, this strategy is gonna work, this strategy is not gonna work. If you've got diversity there and empathy there, those people hopefully will have a better understanding of what, what strategy or intervention is right. And so that's what we've been working on, diversifying that. So we've been going out and attracting, you know, we, we've had barristers, chartered accountants, former athletes you know, and coaches who come onto our leaderboard academy, which is in, the, with, in partnership with University of Leicester and Leicester City Football Club. And so we, you know, we spend um, an afternoon at the um, Leicester City Football Club who, who are fantastic because they give a really good understanding of, um, the commercial side, the playing side, the community side, how a whole professional sports club works. But at the same time, we're building empathy and understanding of these individuals. So when they go onto these boards, they've already got their technical skills, which might be coaching, accountancy, 
you know, the legal field, whatever they've got, but we're just putting a little bit more gold dust on them on understanding the barriers facing diverse communities. So it's, it's, a, it's a great USP, it's worked really well. And in the first cohort of uh, our graduates, one third went onto these boards uh, within six months of um, graduating from our course. So it is, it is um, one of the success stories of Sporting Equals. Okay, cool. And what sort of organisations have, have got involved with you guys? And which, sort, which organisations have sort of been the most passionate about being involved? I think more recently, I think London Marathon have been really passionate. You know, they've signed our Sporting Equals Charter. They've developed the action plans. They've put in a lot of investment um, into diversifying themselves internally and, and, and through, you know, their runners, their stewards, their volunteers, right across all the events they do. They don't just do London Marathon. They do a lot of events. Um, and, you know, through their charitable causes, funding diverse organisations, diverse projects. So that's, that's a real organisation which is very passionate on this agenda. Um, we've, we've obviously worked with the Football Association and many other governing bodies of sport. Uh, Premiership Rugby recently um, funded six of their um, uh, uh, individual within Premiership Rugby from um, uh, their athletes to staff to go through this leaderboard academy that I was talking about earlier, you know, funded, um, uh, sponsored them to go onto that course, which is fantastic because they're, that's, they're trying to make future leaders. You know, these are future leaders of our sector. Um, and so they're sponsoring them. So Premiership Rugby have um, really come forward. Lawn Tennis Association have taken tennis into faith centers whether it's Gurdwara's mosques or um, Mundars, they've taken them into there, and they should. You know, and 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 I, I, one of the first things I used to always go about when I came to sector is stop asking the community to come to you. You've got to go to the communities, and the Lawn Tennis Association have actually done exactly that. They've taken it right into those communities, and some of these are some of the great um, uh, successes of Sporting Equals have uh, have been able to have. In terms of sharing best practices i mean the idea of taking i think i've heard about that taking tennis into the faith centers that's brilliant um and to be honest it's perhaps because i've had a football focus and it's difficult to take football into a small internal space but there's no reason why it can't be done even if it's a, a something small-sided etc so in terms of sharing best practices do do these sporting organisations, do they look outside? Do they only look to you guys? What, what do they do to, to move forward and, and take, take the learnings? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, many of these um, uh, professional football clubs, professional sports clubs, they do have um, um, uh, many different agencies and consultants that they work with around diversity and inclusion, um, you know, you, they, they do look at best practice. Um, we're always throwing some of our proposals and letting people think about what, what could change for them um, all the time. So you, you think they are um, ultimately, like I said at the beginning, you need people in those positions who are going to make those decisions, need to understand the barriers and the challenges facing diverse communities. Some of the barriers facing South Asian in football is going to be very different um, to the barriers facing um, uh, uh, African and Caribbean 
footballers. So uh, uh, compared to other communities, and we need to understand you can't you know not you know one uh, it, one side doesn't fit all. We need to understand that the diversity is so important, and so you need people around you with diverse thinking, diverse um, uh, thought patterns and if you don't have that then you're only going to be on a one track and and usually that's going to fail when it comes to interventions okay so coming back or talking about football for a second and asians in football etc i mean one of the things we've talked about on with in previous shows is not homogenizing the asian community because it's it's not just people coming from different parts of asia it's there's different generations involved, there's different religions involved, there's different cultures, different languages. It's it's just the opposite of homogenizing a community, but we, which is something that people do. How, how are you guys tackling, what are your main names in regards to Asians in football? Because football is the biggest sport in the country. Um, and if you, any successes you can have in there will amplify, the, I guess, your reach into other sports. So what sort of, things are you guys trying what sort of things work for you what sort of things um are you able to then take into into other sports yeah i mean i think um, when sport equals um was created in the years we've been spending it's been a lot of time on participation and sport participation that's where we we're going and then it became very much about leadership positions trying to build a bit more understanding of our decision makers um, uh, who may not have the um, lived experiences of some of these communities now we're we're starting to broaden even further out and thinking about specific sports like where are the asians in hockey which is a, such a big sport in some of the south asian communities and don't forget there were south asians who won um, and, and Olympic gold for Team G back in the day as well. So where are those? So you know, hockey is important to us. Um, and, and, and cricket's important with you know, with such a high participation level, but very low level of elite talent. And then the third one is absolutely Asians in football. You know, where are they from coaching at the highest level to playing um, professional uh, football at the highest level? Um, again, and so that's very important to us. And we have uh, supported uh, clubs like Queens Park Rangers Football Club, Tottenham Hotspur, um, uh, Liverpool Football Club, a number of these different clubs in different ways um, over the years. And some of it's um, and Chelsea as well about um, uh, attracting and engaging uh, more communities to get involved with their uh, with their clubs, but I think it needs to be more formalised. I think we do need clubs to understand it's about welcoming environments. It's about scouts who look like them, coaches who understand them. It's about having um, uh, hubs and centres which they feel welcomed in and embraced and feel a part of it and not having to have the pressure that they're under. It's about families um, understanding the process and the pathways and you know, I've had many um, families come to me uh, talking about we have absolutely no idea. You know, my, my son's in an academy, but they keep telling us this, that and the other. And we don't know whether that's the right pathway or the wrong pathway or what should we do um, about that. And a, a really good example is um, um, a South Asian woman who spoke to me about <clears throat> her son was in a football academy in, in quite a high level um, uh, football club, um, which uh, um, has been successful. Um, over the years and um, uh, he was in that club for many years from I think around six or seven years onwards and then got released 
when I think he got to 10 or 11 and, and she rang me up and said, look, he's just got released. I mean, he was doing so well there. And, you know, suddenly they, they, they didn't really want him anymore. She goes, I really pushed the coach to give me an answer why. And she goes, he said to me, I'm not going to take a risk on a South Asian footballer. They've never made it in football. And the, uh, and the pressure on me is too much. I don't, you know, I'm not going to um, take that risk. And, and, uh, and that was a one-to-one -one, um, informal conversation that she, he finally told her what he felt. She was obviously distraught, didn't know where else to go. Um, and we, you know, we talked about not giving up and everything else. And um, he went off and um, uh, carried on with trying to get back into fo um, football again. He went into the, um, uh, one of these um, talent uh, tournaments that the Premier League, one of the Premier League football clubs does. And he won the tournament. He was offered a, a one-year uh, contract with that club. Uh, and then, um, lo and behold, guess who comes back for him with a two-year contract? The academy who released him in the first place. I mean, this is the ridiculous side of it, which really annoys me to think that percep <clears throat> perception goes a long way. And the pressure on maybe the scouts is maybe too much. And we've got to... You know, football clubs need to think outside of the box, understand the empathy um, and understanding that, you know, the footballers come from diverse backgrounds. Um, um, and I'm talking about their physique um, uh, and, and the way they think and the way they play is very diverse. And that is what football cl clubs need to be saying to their scouts and educating them better, because these are some of the stories that we're coming across. And yes, Sport and Equals will be doing a lot more in that space of Asians in football. We're moving very quickly. Um, I was um, with um, Kash Siddiqui yesterday, who's a, a professional footballer, and we've had some really good conversations. I've been speaking to a number of other people who are very close to um, Asians, um, in football, people like Jazz Butt as well, um, who are very passionate on this agenda. And, and you know, what Sport Equals can do is bring in the masses. You know, we've got huge network um, of organisations linked to us from uh, diverse communities, and in this case, South Asian communities. We can, you know, we've got the, we've got the masses behind us, but we've also got some good, strong links into football clubs. We've got some really good, passionate um, individuals um, who are coaches in the sector. Uh, um, for example, Chris Ramsey, Manisha Taylor, you know, these people have always supported this agenda. Uh, Brentford Football Club, who've, who've said to us that they want to do a lot more on this agenda. So we know that there are um, clubs um, and allies, allies from clubs to coaches, to individuals, to communities, to faith centres. They all want to come together. And I think, you know, one thing what Sport and Equals can do is we have no political link to anybody. What we'd like to do is bring it all together. And if we can do that, then we played our part, a small part, but we can play our part too. Yeah, um, I'll be honest, I've had exactly that conversation with a scout about my son. And that was one of the reasons why I've ended up starting this podcast. So it's much more common. Well, it's just more common. Than it should, one incident is more common than it should be, but it's even more common than that. Um, okay. I mean, people think it's, you know, when I tell them that case study, people think it's a one-off. And I keep saying it's not a one-off. It's happening up and down the country. And you really need to be listening to the communities about this. I'm really pleased that you mentioned that too. Yeah. And the, the trouble is, I mean, I was, I can't remember who I was talking to about this the other day, but 
okay, that that kid you've mentioned, he's had one coach who's had that opinion of him. And for any kid going through the system, any kid, doesn't matter what sort of heritage they've got, they've got there's so many touch points along the way. There's so many coaches and managers and administrators, etc., that can all have a massive influence on their careers. And unfortunately, it just needs one bad apple. And the chances are all players of any any type will come across those, but they're just extra problems for, for Asians in particular. Okay, before we sort of move on to some more positive stuff, can you just tell me generally um, what kind of obstacles, problems, frustrations that you guys have? Um, we'll, we'll come back to the positives and what you guys are doing to move forward, but I'm just curious to know what, yeah, what kind of obstacles that, you guys come across with that prevent you guys from being as successful as you'd like and I guess that can lead on to what things you're doing to tackle those in the future. Yeah two of the biggest things is uh, one is the lack of empathy as I said earlier and expertise on race equality not on other equality but on race equality really understanding the lived experience of the communities we're talking about whether it's uh, black coaches or South Asian footballers yeah, the, the empathy just isn't there. And, and, and that's always a problem. Whenever we're having a conversation with people, it's people who haven't got those um, direct linked into those communities. So they don't really get it. They don't understand the barrier. They're always lying as well. I've had it tough. <clears throat> These people have had it hard. Those have had it hard. Why are the South Asian communities any different? And they just don't get the barriers and challenges and the perception that we're talking about today make it difficult. And so when we are trying to build those interventions in place. You need to be speaking to people who are understanding at that level that you're talking to them. And sometimes their, their level of understanding is very poor. And so you're not starting at a, a, a level playing field at all. And that's why they talk about equity. The other problem is the lack of data collection. I just can't believe it. In the sports sector, people are not collecting data. So if you're collecting data, that when I'm going in, say, look, you just don't, look, you just don't have um, enough uh, they, you know, uh, 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 ethnically diverse people working in your workforce or coaches or whatever. They say, oh well, yeah, we might have, but we don't. We're not recording the data. Well, why aren't you recording that? You've got it. Oh well, we haven't got the resources to record that. No, you've got to start with the data. You've got to tell us who you've got at every level, and then we can build interventions which will actually really make a difference for your organizations and clubs. And I think data collection is one of the biggest differences that the sports sector can make. And that's going to be one of the biggest campaigns we're going to be going after this year in a massive way. Yeah, I know, I know Kick It Out are quite, have quite a big focus on data. I think partly because of Sanjay Bandari and his background as well. In my role as sports lead for South Asian Heritage Month, I won't say which sport, but I spoke to one of the major sports in the UK. And I asked them how many pro and semi-professional players, participants they had, which they told me. I asked how many were Asian. They didn't have a clue, didn't have a clue, which I'm not saying, it's not a problem in terms of, I don't know if there's a, I'm not suggesting there's a problem in regards to that particular sport and Asians, but you're right, in terms of being able to move forward and having an idea as to the issues, you, you do need, the numbers are very hugely important. 
I get that. Okay. So tell me about future plans. Where are sporting, what are sporting equals main plans at the moment? And where would you like to see the organization focus its efforts in the next, let's say, three to five years? Well, I think there's, it's, we've always worked in a twofold. One is about participation, as I mentioned, the health is wealth. And I'll always say to people, you've got to use the power of sport and physical activity. Get yourselves fit physically. Get yourselves mentally fit as well. And so we are, you know, we're um, uh, just starting a project with uh, Peloton. Um, as well as Sweaty Betsy. We're in a project with London Marathon Charitable Trust, as well as Spirit of 2012. These are participation projects that we can't get, wait to really get back into because of COVID-19, it's been really difficult having face-to-face -face, um, sport and physical activity. So we're gonna really push on that again. Um, and that's something that we want to be doing um, um, always as an organization. But also the other end, it is about the campaigns and, and that having that influence and advocacy. And you know, we're grateful to Support England for the funding they give us to that end agenda because that's what we need to change the thought and thinking and the practices within the sports sector, whether it's professional football clubs or whether it's governing bodies of sport. And one thing we, we, we launched this year was something called the race report card. It's worked really well in the United States. We've launched it here. It'll be going out um, to um, sports organizations uh, up and down the country. And we're gonna be asking them the simple question. Tell us the numbers of um, ethnically diverse people working for your organizations. We wanna know from the workforce, coaches, the national team representation from um, uh, under 16s, under 18s, under 20, uh, 23s, etc. We just want numbers. That's what we want. We're not that interested or concerned about the strategy because those are, all look great on paper. We want to know what's the impact they're having. And the best way to know is representation of the ethnically diverse communities, whether it's black coaches or South Asian footballers. We want to know what have you got in the system and the talent pathways that you're setting up. And is that going to be, is that something you're sending out to the, the main organisations or are you sending that to the individual clubs? So for football, for instance, I think a lot of people are under the misapprehension that the FA controls everything, whereas in reality, the FA is very distinct from the EFL, from the Premier League, and then again, from every single one of the, the football clubs. Yeah, we're um, working... There's a, uh, a number of professional football clubs who've come to us and said, we'd be happy to pilot this. Uh, and I'm really pleased because they didn't need to say that, to be honest. You know, most of them are running for the hills when they're hearing about the race report card. But these are clubs who've said, look, you know, we wouldn't mind piloting it for you, seeing how it goes. And, and those would be organisations I think are brave enough to actually look at interventions that they're going to make a difference. And I think their organisation, but their clubs, Will be pretty diverse for them to say in the first place or are working towards that. We'll also be working not just with professional uh, clubs but also with national governing bodies of sport, particularly the ones who are in tier one and tier two, which are the ones who are uh, uh, publicly funded at a quite a high level. We want to be going to them and saying, right, tell us, how is it ethnically diverse are you? Um, um, right through their organisations, right from their workforce and, and, and ma middle management, right through to their talent pathways and their national representation. So we'll be going to both. Of course, it's got to be step by step because we're a very small organisation. Um, we can only do a certain amount of um, uh, clubs or organisations. 
Um, but we're hoping that's going to build momentum and we'll be really pushing harder and faster um, to go through as many professional sports clubs as we can and football clubs, as well as governing bodies of sport. Okay. And finally, what, what kind of support would you like? And I say that from, I guess, from me and other podcasters, other commentators, as well as communities and South Asian Heritage Month, the people that would listen for that, etc. Uh, from communities, if 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 you're a if you're linked into a community organisation in your local community, who who looks at sport or physical activity, who delivers sport or physical activity, become as an um, um, associate member of Sporting Equals. We need to unite the voices. The problem is we're divided. And that sort of divide and rule strategy has worked for the for the sector pretty well. And I think we need to come together. And if we don't come together and we need to leave our political voices behind, we need to have a common cause, a common voice, and we need to come um, together and, and be united. When we're talking to some of these establishments, some of these institutions, some of these um, 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 organisations, if we don't go together, we're going to be picked off individually. Some was given £5,000 to shut us up, some given £10,000, and some was given nothing at all. We need to come together, and, and, and that, that a united voice what I need really from individuals to communities at that local level and then people like yourselves who are um, very influential to talk about that united um, voice and 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 talk about what sporting equals are uh, are doing and 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 the innovative space that we, we've been creating because we need to make a difference and and sporting equals is furious we we need to unite the voices uh, and 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 less of this divisions that we've got between communities